It has been several weeks since we last studied the book of Acts together, but today we're going to resume our verse-by-verse study in chapter 14. We will do the whole chapter today. You'll remember that we are in the middle of Paul's first missionary journey. In the beginning of Acts chapter 13, the elders of the church in Antioch commissioned Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel out beyond the sea in obedience to the word of the Holy Spirit. They first went through Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Then they sailed north to Perga. They traveled in the mountains to Antioch and Pisidia. This was a different Antioch than the one that sent them out. And there we saw Paul's typical opening statement to the synagogue, which was always his first stop in any new town. And the chapter ended with the Jews stirring up the people to drive them out of Pisidian Antioch. So we've already begun to see the standard pattern of Paul's ministry. And that will continue today as we see him minister in the region of Galatia to three different cities. If you have a Bible that has the maps of Paul's missionary journeys in the back, this would be a great week to have your finger back there so that you could see where we're going. What is interesting today, though, is that in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas will be celebrated and welcomed by the people, not rejected outright, which was typically how it went. But this was not the kind of acceptance that they could accept, as we will see. Instead, we're going to see Paul stoned and left for dead. Because as Christians, we bring a message that is wonderful, but extremely disruptive to the world apart from Jesus. Usually, this leads to persecution. But sometimes, we will be tempted first, not with rejection, but with acceptance. In those moments we're going to see today, we must do as Paul and Barnabas did and see the compromise for what it really is. And when we do that, it is very possible that the world will turn murderous for our faithfulness to the Lord. But we're not afraid to suffer for the name of Jesus. Whereas Paul will teach us in this passage, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. So let us read these first seven verses together. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, Some sided with the Jews, and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. We saw at the end of chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas shook the dust from their feet and left Pisidian Antioch for Iconium. This was about a 90-mile journey to the southeast along what was called the Via Sebaste. So 90 miles, about the same distance as it is from here to Montgomery, to give you an idea. And it was called the Via Sebaste. That word Sebaste was the Greek equivalent of the Latin word Augustus. And it was named that way because Caesar Augustus, which would have been Caesar Sebaste in Greek, he built that road up into the mountains so that his legions could maneuver through the highlands, which was a tough going back then. And you can even Google pictures of the Via Sebaste, and those roads are still largely intact, an amazing feat of engineering. Iconium was at an altitude of 3,370 feet. The region is cold. It's barren with very little water, but the mountain streams flowed in just the right spot that allowed Iconium to be built at such a high elevation. Now these seven verses give us a condensed script of what would happen when Paul visited every city. First, they would enter the synagogue and preach to the Jews. Some Jews and Gentiles believe, but then some of the other Jews have enough of them and kick them out of the synagogue. This leads to the establishment of a separate ecclesia, or gathering, which is where we get the word church. Signs and wonders inevitably accompany the preaching of the gospel, and the church grows. And then before long, somebody, usually it's a prominent Jewish person or Jewish persons, stir up the city to beat him up and drive him out. 
And this is exactly what happened to them in Iconium. And these seven verses serve as a template for what's going to happen in the rest of Paul's ministry. As we go through the rest of these chapters, we're going to see this happen over and over and over again. One important thing worth noticing in this passage is found in verse 4. There, both Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles. Do you see that? This is the case in verse 14 of this chapter as well. The apostles, Barnabas and Paul. This is significant because it shows us that the term apostolos in Greek was broader than just a reference to the twelve. James, the brother of Jesus, is also called an apostle in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. I'm not going to spend any time discussing this. It's important for me to point it out so that we can refer to it later if we want to make a broader point. Suffice it to say for now that according to Scripture... An apostle is one who is sent out as a witness to the message of Christ with a measure of authority from Christ himself. We use that term apostle much more exclusively today, but it is important to know what the Bible says and not to import our modern use of that word into the way the Bible used it. But we're not going to spend any more time on that topic. Before we move on to the rest of this chapter, though, I want to draw attention to something that we're going to see later on today. When the missionaries came to Iconium, both the Jews and the Gentiles were united in their opposition to the message. You would expect the Jews to object on religious grounds to the exclusion of the Gentiles. You'd think that would be the thing that made them so mad in the first place, is that they're bringing in Jews and Gentiles together. But as was the case in the crucifixion of Jesus, the Jews and the Gentiles made common cause to stamp out the light of the gospel. This is because the gospel is a disruptive message, not just to pagan idolatry, but to any religious system that sets itself above the Lord Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We destroy every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. By joining together with the Gentiles that they supposedly despised, these Jews showed themselves to be the same unwitting pawns of Satan as the heathens were. Despite their differences, every religion, philosophy, and tradition is on the same team when it comes to Jesus. And they all must be cast down by the message we preach. We're not going to spend much more time in Iconium because there's not a lot there. And there's a story in Lystra that I really want to get to. So we read in verse 6, Paul and Barnabas left Iconium when the plot was made known to them. And they moved into the region of Lycaonia. Kind of hard to say that for me anyway, Lycaonia. I will remind you that all of these churches that we're going to discuss today are in the province of Galatia, to whom was written the book of Galatians by the Apostle Paul. They're moving down that Roman road, the Via Sebaste, and they first move 18 miles south to the city of Lystra. Lystra was a military outpost in this mountainous region. Lycaonia had a reputation for being un-Roman back then. Even to this day, communities up in the mountain heights are notorious for refusing to conform to any culture but their own. Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires because its hill tribes are next to impossible to control. The Scottish Highlanders have a similar reputation, right? Even today in America, we have our hillbillies. Up in the Appalachian Mountains, who keep to themselves and don't much care what anybody else has to say. True to form, Lycaonia was rustic, backwards, and crime-ridden. It is to such a place that Paul and Barnabas fled from persecution to establish a church. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas will probably have the most enthusiastic welcome they are ever going to get. But here Paul will also endure one of the most horrendous outbursts of persecution he will ever face. Let us read verses 8 through 10 first. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet! And he sprang up and began walking. Now this story picks up and media race. It does not tell us whether Paul and Barnabas were preaching in the synagogue or anything else. Luke cuts right to the chase and begins with the best part. That's kind of how Acts works. He'll give you summaries like he gave in Iconium, but then he'll tell all the most interesting highlights and give a little more detail on those. 
We can assume that Paul was preaching a message similar to what we saw in Acts 13, although since this was primarily a Gentile audience, as we will see, it may have included more elements from what he's going to preach in Acts 17, where we get his typical message to the Gentiles, and we'll see that in a few weeks. Whatever the case, Paul was preaching, and at least one man was listening. A man crippled from birth, it says. Just like the man we met at the gate beautiful in Acts chapter 3, who was healed by Peter and John, you'll remember. Now, verse 13 seems to indicate that the crowd was gathered at the gate. And this makes sense from a strategic point, especially if there was no synagogue for them to preach at. They would have wanted to preach where they could be heard by the most people. So the gates of the city are the ideal place for that. And it also makes sense that this is where they would find a lame man begging. Picture this man, if you will. For his whole life, he would have been rested against the walls of the city, close to the temple of Zeus, so that the pilgrims and the people coming through would pity him and maybe give him enough to scrape by. He would have had someone who carried him there day by day, maybe a family member, maybe not. I'll bet this guy felt like a burden to everybody, and probably he was treated like a burden wherever he was taken home as well. His legs, which had never been used, would have been shriveled and thin, no muscle tone whatsoever. And I am sure that he suffered regular abuse, which he could do nothing to resist. If somebody wants to rob this guy, what is anybody going to do about it? He can't fight back. And this is his life, his whole life. And it's all he can expect for the remainder of his days. Sitting there at the gate, people coming to the temple, and he sort of plays off of their religious guilt in order to give him something. But then one day, here come these two strange foreigners preaching about God and his son Jesus Christ who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And while at first he listens because there's nothing else to do and it's not like he can go anywhere else, at some point his attention drifts from the potential almsgivers and he starts to listen to what they're trying to say. He focuses on the apostles. Maybe he heard Paul say the words from Isaiah 53 that by his wounds we are healed. And in his heart, the grace of God began to move by the Holy Spirit, drawing him to the point of faith. It says in verse 9 that he had faith to be made well in the ESV, but the word that has been translated made well is sothenai. Literally, this is to be saved. He had faith in the God of these men. What have the gods of Rome ever done for this guy? He was willing to give his loyalty, little though it was, to Jesus Christ. Maybe he could heal my legs. Maybe he could save my soul. He doesn't even have enough details to know. He just starts to believe that maybe there's something to what these guys are saying. And the same faith that caused him to trust in Christ for his legs to be restored was the same faith that would bring restoration to his soul. And Paul sees him through the crowds. Maybe the crowds were listening, maybe not. Maybe they were just kind of strolling by on their way in and out of the city. But he can tell that there's something different about this man. The others might have been scoffing or mocking him. But this guy, I don't know, maybe he just had a look in his eye and Paul knew. No doubt the demons were hard at work stopping up the ears and the hearts of the crowd. But even they overlooked the lame man who sat by the gate. And Paul commanded him to be healed in a loud voice. You like that? Paul's not scared. He wants everybody to know and to see. And the man sprang up. His legs instantly strengthened and lengthened. His neurons instantly able to process that new nervous information. And his equilibrium immediately calibrated to give him a lifetime's worth of balance. Do you think the crowd was ready to listen to him now? They absolutely were, as we're going to see in a moment. This is how the gospel breaks into a dead community. God transforms one life. And that healing is contagious. There was a new sheriff in Lystra, and his name was Jesus Christ. When God makes himself known to you, don't ignore him. When you see something miraculous happen, when something falls into place in your life that you know God had to be behind it, don't ignore him. You might not know all the details, but if you have enough faith to stand up and walk, this could be the turning point of your entire life. It certainly was for this man. But let's move on and read verses 11 through 13. Things are going to take a bit of a turn here. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lycaonian, The gods have come down to us in likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and wanted to offer sacrifice 
with the crowds. Well, this is perhaps not the welcome that Paul and Barnabas were expecting. The people immediately react, as you can imagine, to the healing of the lame man. A tumult is raised in the crowd, but because they're speaking in their local dialect, Paul and Barnabas cannot understand them. When they finally figure out what's going on in a verse or two, they're going to be very distraught at what almost happens on their account. There was a legend in Lystra that you can read in the Metamorphoses by Ovid, a Roman poet. In this legend, Jupiter and Mercury, or Zeus and Hermes to give their Greek names, come to the area and are unable to find anyone in Lystra who will house them for the night. Finally, an old couple, Bacchus and Philemon, welcome them into their home and show them great hospitality. In return, the two gods flood the entire area and kill everybody else, but turn the lowly cottage of Bacchus and Philemon into a grand temple with a golden roof. And for the rest of their days, these two old people tended the temple until they were transformed into trees at the moment of their deaths. So, there's a story there. The moral of hospitality to the gods was well drilled into the people of Lystra. If, you, if you're nice to the gods, you might have your house turned into a golden temple. If you're rude to the gods, you might have your house flooded and die. So, they had heard this story their whole life. Now, in their midst, there are two men, a messenger and another one, and they're performing miracles. They've been trained for this moment. They know exactly what to do, and they begin to offer sacrifices. Imagine the crowd rushing inside the gates to tell the priest of what had happened. He brings out oxen to sacrifice. In the Greek culture, traditionally, these would have been white oxen with garlands draped around their necks, big arrangements of flowers and, and laurel leaves and things like that. And the people would have been shouting and celebrating music and revelry. And in the center of it all sit Paul and Barnabas trying to figure out what's going on. And then when they see the priest coming to the gates where there would have been idols of the various gods set up and people beginning to prepare them for sacrifice, they knew. Imagine their horror, which we will see in the following verses, as they realize that they, the missionaries of Christ, are about to be made the objects of idolatrous worship. I would like to pause in the flow of the story here to make a very important point. We ought never to romanticize paganism. Idolatry is the first and worst sin in the entirety of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 24, the Lord speaks to the false gods of the people and says this, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. He who chooses an idol, the Lord says, is an abomination. The panic and the revulsion that Paul and Barnabas feel in this moment is entirely righteous, biblical, and appropriate. It's not culturally insensitive. It's exactly what they ought to have felt. We have a tendency to soften the edges of paganism, don't we? To admire it or even envy it. Oh, I would never worship, but you've got to admit, there's, there's really some uh, literary value to these things. How many movies have been made about Americans finding inner peace in the Hindu culture of India or the Buddhist temples of Japan. I've been to Nepal. There are Americans who travel there to hike in the mountains and worship at all the shrines way up in the Himalayas. But I do not know, having been there myself, how anyone could look at the filth and the depravity of that worship and find anything to be desired in it. It is violent, it is dehumanizing, and it is disgusting. It was not until I saw the temples in Kathmandu that I truly understood the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. And that's not scripture, but it's true. But of course, we never see any of that. We only see the doctored photos. And hear the testimonies of rich celebrity dupes who paid a lot of money to go over there and see exactly what they wanted to see. Those priests aren't dumb. They know what the Americans want, and they're happy to give it to you. We read the stories of the heroes of Greece, and we think only a sophisticated society could come up with such art. We admire the skill with which they crafted their idols and their temples. Even cartoons. They turn the brutality of pagan religion into fun little stories for children. The bright colors and the exotic music and the skill of the foreign actors deceive us into thinking that there might be something to admire in these pagan religions. 
My wife and I once watched the ballet by Igor Stravinsky called The Rite of Spring. It's an homage to the ancient paganism of pre-Christian Russia. It begins with dark spirits selecting a victim in the night, leading through these martial dances and festal celebrations, building up to the possession and human sacrifice of a young girl. I do not mind telling you that we were very unsettled by this. We thought we were going to participate in some high culture for a while. But it was high culture degraded by a vile subject. The music, the dance, the sets, it was all skillfully performed. It was impressive. But the message for us was driven home even harder for all of that. All we could say when we were done was, I am so glad that the Lord delivered us out of all that. Human sacrifice. It's not just a grim fairy tale. The Aztecs would cut out the hearts of their victims and save their heads for further rituals later on. The Aborigines in Australia made all of their young men engage in cannibalism of a rival tribesman in order to complete his journey to manhood. The children of Israel got caught up in the worship of Molech, where they would make their children pass through the fire, as the Bible says. That is, they were burning their babies alive. There is nothing in pagan religion that is worthy of your admiration. Well, consider, though, the splendor of Egypt or any of those old cultures. How many awe-inspiring films have been made lionizing Egyptian culture? And yet they worshipped frogs. They worshipped cows. They worshipped dung beetles and falcons and cats. They worshipped the sun and the Nile River itself. When the Lord sent Moses to deliver his people, he wasn't only coming after Pharaoh. He declared war on those false usurping deities. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment, the Lord said in Exodus 12, 12. The Nile River was turned to blood. Plagues of frogs and flies, a plague upon the cattle, darkness across the land, down to the death of the firstborn. God asserted his superiority over their idols. And in that magnificent demonstration of his power, he parted the sea and let his people pass over on dry land, blocking Pharaoh's way with a pillar of fire before he drowned his armies in the waters of the Red Sea. And yet, at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel made for themselves a golden calf and began to worship it in orgiastic frenzy. After all that, how foolish, we say. And yet, are we not just as foolish when we gaze wistfully at the Native American religions? Are we not foolish to remember the old Norse gods with some sort of cultural pride, as if there was anything to be proud of? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Do we not serve a glorious God? Is he not magnificent enough for us? Is his word insufficiently beautiful and wise? Are the grand traditions of the church too small a thing for us to identify with? Do not look for borrowed spirituality, Christian. Astrology, magic, idols, good luck charms, transcendental meditation, drug-induced experiences, even the inspirational quotes of pagan scriptures. Leave it all alone. Give yourself to the living, triune God in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ. Do not let your eyes wander to the idols of the world. It was exactly this sort of thing that Paul and Barnabas had come to liberate these people from, and yet here it was happening before their very eyes. The people saw a miracle and immediately assumed they knew what it meant. They thought their gods were at work, and they knew they needed to appease them. But they were terribly wrong in this. God was doing something new. This is how the devil redirects people and nations from sin into deeper sin. When God speaks, the devil doesn't guide them into the truth, but he redirects the momentum in the wrong direction. He tries to assimilate the good news into the demonic system to which they were already bound. In the mountains of South America, there are many tribal religions that have imported Christian imagery and language but retained the same barbarous practices and teachings as before. I think of the, the voodoo religion practiced in Haiti and those other islands where they claim to be worshiping Jesus and they read their Bibles, but it's all tied up with all those old magical rituals. It's the devil's work to blend the two together. And it can happen to individuals too. 
When God begins to act in a person's life, of course, it's outside the realm of their experience, and they don't really know what to do with it. When God heals them or provides for them or gives them a dream or a vision or an evangelist speaks the message to them. So immediately they begin to search for a category in which to put Jesus. The scientist will seek to find natural explanations for the things he's seen. The Hindu will just absorb Jesus into his pantheon of millions of gods. There's plenty of room for one more. And the non-spiritual person will chalk it up to whatever little bits of religion she's picked up along the way. The energy of the universe, for instance. Paul and Barnabas see this exact thing happening. They've done a great miracle by the power of the Holy Spirit, but these people are ready to give glory to Zeus and Hermes for it. Not only that, but they believe Paul and Barnabas are these gods. They're prepared to give glory to the apostles that belongs only to Jesus Christ. So let's read verses 14 through 18 to see how they responded. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas tore their clothes. They ran into the crowd, trying to grab hold of someone who will listen to them, begging the priest to stop what he's doing. You can see the frenzy of this crowd. They're not even listening to the gods they're supposedly about to worship. Isn't this a picture of the church throughout all the centuries? The world is making sacrifices to idols while Christians are weeping for them and begging for them to come to their senses. Now, perhaps someone might look at this situation and say they should have tried a different strategy. They might recommend that the apostles allow the worship to continue and then use their elevated position to instruct the people more clearly. Maybe even they should participate in the rites themselves, since obviously it's none of it's real, so what difference does it make? That way they could gain the trust of the Lystran people and slowly reveal to them the truth about Christ. I could imagine such a strategy being recommended in a number of seminaries today. That is not what Paul and Barnabas did, and it is not what we should do either. We must insist on getting the gospel right in people's lives. If there is a misunderstanding, we must step in at once to correct it. Christian worship is never to be ignorant and out of control. That is the hallmark of pagan worship. People lose their minds in these ceremonies, and they get whipped up to such a state that they'll kill their own children, they'll violate their own wedding vows because they're in such a high pitch of emotion in worship to their false god. When I was in Nepal, there was uh, these Hare Krishna worshipers that were leaping and spinning in the air, and they were, of course, all doped up. Marijuana is a huge part of the religion over there. So they're high as a kite, whirling and dancing and shouting and screaming and banging these drums, and they, they get themselves so worked up that they think they're having these spiritual experiences. Man, when you're in a state like that, you'll do anything. The Lord tells us to do the opposite of that. The fruit of the Spirit is self control. Paul would later write that in the church, all things should be done decently and in order. We place a high premium on understanding in the church. This is why we preach so much. Our, our God is not to be pleased by the rituals alone. He wants to know us personally. And he's not a dumb idol, as these people seem to think. Paul and Barnabas were not about to allow the preaching of the gospel to be associated with the sacrifice of oxen to the Roman gods. They insisted that the people get it right. The gospel is disruptive. When you share the message of Jesus with somebody, you are deliberately attempting to change the way they worship. There are many who are highly offended by this. There is a whole field of study that calls this cultural imperialism. Have you heard this one? They rail against the church for tearing down the beautiful religions of the world to replace them with their own oppressive religion. They call it white supremacy. They call it oppression. They call it evil. When John Chow, who was a Christian missionary, killed off of the coast of uh, India in 2018, all of the stories written about him were not 
pitiful. We're not sympathetic. They were angry, not at the people that killed him, but at him for daring to try to change the religion of another culture. Of course, these people fail to remember Christianity did not originate in America. didn't even originate in Europe. It's a Middle Eastern religion. It's a Jewish religion. It spread through Europe. It changed Europe. And it saved Europe. All the horrific things that were done by the Druids and the witches were eradicated in the name of Jesus Christ. Our culture was changed first. And the mandate to take up the gospel around the world is not a cultural one. It's a spiritual one. It's in the Bible, given to us by Jesus Christ himself, hundreds of years before the gospel would make it to England or anywhere else. Of course, they never care to, those people that want to rail against missionaries, will never care to acknowledge the inhuman things done by these other cultures in the names of their gods. But that's to be expected, because these ideas are the inspiration of Satan. They're coming up with academic rationale to prevent the gospel from going out. So, of course, when Satan is stirring up people to hate on the church, he's not going to keep them consistent and have them hate on these other religions too. No, it's all going to be aimed at Jesus. Which is why we don't listen to them. We listen to what the Bible says. This is true on a personal level as well. People get very angry when you tell them that they're a sinner and they must repent. Sometimes a person, I've seen this before, they will say yes to the message only to storm out when they realize that they cannot keep living exactly the way they want to. Sometimes they'll go find a church that will tell them, yeah, do whatever you want. Jesus doesn't mind. But Jesus Christ demands everything from us. We must die to our old lives. This message is disruptive, both to society and to individuals. Many people cannot handle it, but we still cannot escape what the Bible has told us to do. So we are to insist on people getting the gospel right. If they try to integrate it into a preformed worldview, we must correct them. If they misunderstand the teachings, we help them. This is an ongoing process. It's happening in your life right now. Luckily for us, I do not have to start as far at the beginning as Paul and Barnabas did with you. <laughs> Let's take a look at what they said to these people. They begin by insisting that they are men of like nature with the Lystrans. This is the Greek word homoiopathes. It means of like passions. It's homoiopathes. Homo's same or like. Pathes is where we get the word pathetic, meaning emotional or passionate. So homoiopathes, meaning it's of the same passions. It's the same word that James uses to describe Elijah in James 5.17 when it says he was a man of like passions and yet he prayed and it did not rain. We only give glory to Jesus, just like the angels who refused the worship of John in the book of Revelation. They say, we're just like you, and we have come to bring you good news, literally in Greek, to evangelize these people with good news. They don't have to worry about appeasing these petty gods anymore. It's like, no, 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 you don't need to offer a sacrifice. Jesus has already offered himself as a sacrifice for you. The death and resurrection of Jesus have set them free, just like this lame man who was healed, not because he made a sacrifice, but just by the grace of God, with a word. And he makes this, little, this short little speech. It's undoubtedly condensed and smoothed out by Luke when he was writing the story down, but it's, it's, it's still good for us to see. Three points of emphasis that Paul makes here. First, the Lord is one. He tells them that. This is the foundational verse of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the, the lesson that the 39 books of the Old Testament are trying to drill into the heads of the Israelites. There is only one God. He points them away from the countless deities in their Roman pantheon. Not just Zeus and Hermes, but Hades and Aphrodite and Athena and Apollo and all these other gods. Most polytheistic cultures believed in their pantheon. But they also believe in some ancient, way far back in the distant past, there was one God that made everything, and then eventually the smaller gods came in and overthrew him. Doesn't that sound like exactly the story that Satan would tell? <laughs> Satan is telling the story, oh yeah, God made the world, but then me and my boys, we showed up and we knocked him down and we showed him who was boss. That's not how it went down. Kind of like whenever your friend is telling you a story of a fight he got into and you start to suspect that maybe he actually got beat up after all. And Paul is saying, no, 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 we're not looking for these, these little petty gods with little Gs. We're talking about the one true living God. 
He's drawing a distinction between the vicious, bloodthirsty demons that these people called gods and the omnipotent creator. Christianity, y'all, is not one view among many. It is different in kind from the paganism of the world. We go right to the source, the God of gods, the Lord of all other spiritualities, the Lord of all other demons and angels that people have turned to worship. That's what makes us different. We're, we're, not, we're not following the, the trend that all these other cultures follow. It's interesting. Th- this book had all kinds of problems, so it's not a recommendation except to debunk it for you. But you maybe have heard the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And it's all about how all the mythologies of the world really are one, and they're all communicating one message. Would you care to hazard a guess which group, he says, has deviated from the standard monomyth and needs to be corrected? It's Christianity. Oh, surprise. Who knew? And the Jews, too. The Muslims are fine. He says the Muslims have finally made some strides back to the beginning. But, you know, as wacky as that book was in so many ways, he did make one important point. Christianity is not like everything else. We are different in kind from the religions of the world. And this is what Paul is saying. We got to go back to the source, you guys. Not these false idols that you're worshiping. The God who created. God is one, he's telling them. Second point, God has been patient with the world, not permissive. God has been patient with the world, not permissive. Verse 16 is a key verse in the theology of the book of Acts. I'm going to read it again. Acts 14, 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. This is, this is key. We're going to return to this in greater detail in chapter 17, because Paul is going to expand on this. For now, it's enough to just explain what it means. That God was patient with the idolatry of the nations before Christ came. God, you could say, poured all of his energies into Israel, his chosen people. The Gentiles received no special revelation from God, no scripture, no direct communication. And because of this, their false worship thrived and their sin multiplied greatly. But just because God did not send them prophets over those thousands of years, does not mean that God was fine with the way they were living. In Acts 17, Paul's going to explain that the time has come for repentance. Breaks over. (laughs) Christ has risen. There's a new sheriff in town. The Son of God has come to claim his kingdom. And the Gentiles could not fall back on any kind of cultural heritage as an excuse for denying the Lord his right to their worship. So the first thing, the Lord is one. Second of all, God has been patient with the world, not permissive. Number three, it is God who has provided them with all the good of their lives. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, James 1.17. Paul says, the Lord was patient with you and permitted you to continue in your sin for a while, but that does not mean that he abandoned you. He was watching over you all those years. He's saying it was not Zeus or Hermes or anyone else that gave them all that they needed. It was the hand of the Lord. He's saying the old ways do not work. They could not say, well, the idols have provided for us. What a foolish thing to say. I could tip that idol over. What has he ever done for you? Look at the lame man who's now been healed. What had his gods ever done for him? He lived right there by the temple. You'd think that maybe there would have been a miracle or two coming his way. Jesus shows up and day one, this guy is healed. It was time to turn to the one who could be seen. And he refers to the cycles and the seasons of the world. I love how honest the Bible is. He's like, you guys do rain dances and you offer sacrifices in in the harvest time and hoping that, that maybe the gods will give you fair weather next year. He says, but that's not how it works. The rain comes every year, whether you pray for it or not. The sun goes up and down, whether or not you've gone through your little ritual. He says that's because God, the creator, has done all these things. And that's who he's calling them to worship. He would make a similar point in Romans 1, and I really don't have time to dive into it, but you should read it on your own. He explained that God has revealed himself through creation to such an extent that every person is responsible to worship him. Paul says it is so clear to see who God is through nature alone that you should know enough about him to give him worship. But he says, people turned away to serve false idols so that they could indulge their own lusts. They turned away from nature on purpose so that they could do the unnatural things they wanted to do. The people may not have known the Lord's name, but they should have known his character. 
and his nature. Ignorance is no excuse, because according to the Bible, their ignorance was willful. And here comes the church to herald the change. It's time to repent. This is your chance to get it right. And this is true for every person listening today as well. You too must lay down your idols, the things that you have lifted up above God, and recognize where your good has come from. God is the maker of all things, who provides you with everything you need. Well, I've got everything I need, and I've never worshipped God in my life. I've never even been to church before. God has been patient with you. But now he's calling you to repent from all that stuff. Your useless atheism. What good does your atheism do you in your life? What has it ever done for you? Other than cause you to realize that the world is miserable and you just try to be as happy as you can until you die. Or your custom spirituality, where you've cobbled a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of Buddha and a little bit of this thing and a little bit of that thing and now you, you post it on Instagram and it makes you seem like a really spiritual person. You've got to lay all that down. You made it up. You're going to follow a religion you made up. Or maybe you're worshiping a false god of some kind, of a more formal nature. You've got to lay all that down and come and worship the Lord through his son, Jesus Christ. Do not say, well, it's worked for me. You know that it has not. And Paul is telling them right here, God is merciful. The Bible says God causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. So saying, well, I've got everything I need, that's no measure of whether or not you are worshiping the correct God. The only good that has come to you has come through his mercy. And just because nothing bad has happened to you, it does not mean that he approves of your lifestyle. I just have a peace about it. Who cares if you have a peace about it? What does the Bible say? Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, said Paul, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Well, God's been so good to me, he must love everything that I do. No, when God is kind to you, he's giving you room to get it right before he must judge you. The old ways are no good. There's a new sheriff in town, and his name is Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news, though? You might be sitting there pouting, He's telling me I have to change the way I live. But isn't that good news? All the old, futile ways of the world that can be left behind. This is, this is what a lot of skeptics of, of religion will say. They'll say, church is ridiculous. And then they'll point at something that some pagan group does around the world and say, see, it's horrible. All religion is worthless. Listen, we agree with you that every religion is worthless, but this is different. This is different in kind from everything else. We are deviants from the monomyth. We are the ones who hold to the oldest faith that has ever existed because it has been maintained from the very beginning by the sovereignty of God. We're always smart enough to think we can make bad ideas work. Have you noticed? It doesn't matter how many times some political idea has been tried. There's some guy that says he can make it work. doesn't matter how many times you've tried to fix the dryer, you're going to try it again because this time I can make it work. Or maybe you're sitting there and you've been fighting with something in the house. Maybe there's a problem with the car. You've been fighting with it for hours. Finally, you give up and say, forget it. I'm not going to try this anymore. And then your friend or your husband or your wife says, let me give it a try because that'll make the difference. Doesn't that frustrate you? It's like, I just tried this for half an hour. You really think you're going to show up and make it work? But we do this with God, too, with bad ideas that have failed. It's a useless endeavor. In England, a missionary team from Calvary Chapel Lynchburg in Virginia, they ran into a lot of people on the street who wanted to worship the old Norse pantheon, Thor and Loki and all those guys. Seen too many Marvel movies, probably. They wanted to give Druidism a try again. Never mind the fact that when the English were worshiping Odin, they were scraping in the mud. But at the peak of their piety to Christ, the Victorian era that they hate so much, they ruled the world. Doesn't that tell you anything? Who, who's really the God that lifts up a nation? Well, I think if we tried it again, we, we can finally get things back on track. It didn't work last time. It's time to set aside those old ways. How many times have you tried that ridiculous idea from that book that you read? Maybe she made it sound so great, and she's got really slick Instagram videos, and she's got really slick stuff that she posts online, and her avocado toast just looks so perfect every morning. Like, maybe I should try this. It didn't work last time. Well, I just must be not trying hard enough. No, it's not going to work. Come to the Lord. Paul and Barnabas are risking their lives to make this point, and they just barely succeeded. Isn't that something? 
says that they barely restrained them from sacrificing to them. How would that feel? You're sitting there and they're trying to put laurels around your, your neck and say, we're going to worship you, Zeus. I'm not Zeus. Oh, you're so humble. It's like, come on, please. I'm not a god, I promise you. It's like, ah, we fell for that last time and you flooded our city. We're, we're all going to get our houses turned to gold this time. But they did manage to succeed to keep them from sacrificing to them. So let's move on to verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. I would suppose that there is a time gap between verses 18 and 19. I think that the story of them trying to sacrifice to Paul and these Jews showing up to have him stoned probably happened on different occasions. The passage does not say, but either way, the contrast between the initial welcome of Paul and Barnabas and the mob that stoned Paul is, is a pretty stark difference, isn't it? These are the persecutions and sufferings that happened at Lystra, to which Paul would refer in 2 Timothy 3.11. And this is only the beginning of the Jewish opposition he would face in every city. This is really the tragedy of Scripture, that by the time we come to the book of Acts, the Jews have become the antagonists of the story, where up till now they have only been the protagonists of the story. The same Jews that had run Paul out of town in the previous two cities made the hundred-mile journey, some of them. The ones coming from Antioch and Pisidia were traveling a hundred miles to Lystra. The Iconians were traveling not as far, but they want to finally see this guy put to death. That is devilish determination right there. That is demonic-inspired hate. And we don't see how it happened. We just know that they whipped up a mob and they took hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the city and in the sight of those same idols that they would have tried to sacrifice to in his name, they threw great stones at him and left him for dead. Imagine Barnabas and the other Christians, as they rush to Paul's side, once the crowd is finally dispersed. Imagine them coming over and pulling the rocks off of his body, trying to be gentle with his broken bones and his open wounds. Imagine the weeping and the anger as they believe the apostle has been killed. Then his eyes flutter open. They realize he's going to be all right. Some have speculated that Paul did, in fact, die here and was resurrected miraculously. Passage does not say that, although I would not exclude it from possibility. People back then certainly knew what they were about when they were stoning somebody. Whatever the case, they help this poor man up and they go back into the city where I'm sure they had to set his brakes, tended to his wounds. What a shameful thing for these Jews to do. To exploit the misunderstanding of the Gentiles so that they could put a rival to death. That's why they hated him. They were jealous of him. There are always people willing to poison the minds of the people against the church using innuendo and deliberate misinterpretation to make people angry. Early on in the church, the rumor was that Christians kidnapped children and drank their blood in their bloody rituals because Christians were the first ones to take care of orphans. Never been done before. And the church started to do it. And they also had this ritual where they would drink the blood of Jesus so the rumor that was spread was, they're cannibals. They're kidnapping these kids, and then they kill them, and they drink their blood in church. And their opponents exploited this confusion to have many Christians killed. Was it true? Of course not. It would have taken five minutes to find out whether or not that was true. But there were people that hated the church and wanted it gone. So they told that lie on purpose to stir up some people to get rid of the Christians. And listen, if you thought somebody was actually doing that, you'd want them gone too. And so these people exploited a lie to take down the church. Same thing today. What's the message that you hear today? Christians hate homosexuals. You hear that one, right? Movies are made of, oh, these poor young gay boys that were forced by these abusive Christians to turn away from the thing that made them special. Or we oppress women. You hear that one, right? The Bible is an oppressive patriarchal document. Or I've heard this one a lot that we crush the spirits of our children because we teach them in Sunday school, you're a sinner and you're going to hell. All of these things could be easily explained in less than a minute 
You teach your children that they're vile sinners. Actually, I grew up watching VeggieTales, and it ended every episode with, God made you special, and he loves you very much. There's a message you could get behind, right? And these people know that these things are lies. Even if they believe that that's what we're doing, they certainly know it's not what we're intentionally doing, but they have an agenda. They're bitter opponents of the church, so they deliberately misinterpret what we do in order to whip up anger against us. Once again in this passage, you have the Jews and the Gentiles working together to destroy the truth. The devil is not picky about the alliances he will forge among those he has deceived. We see differences between Muslims, Hindus, I don't know, animists, atheists. We see differences. The devil's like, they're all a bunch of rubes as far as I'm concerned. So if I've got to manipulate them all to work together, why not? Who cares? I'm not worried about being consistent. The only consistency I care about is opposing Jesus. For example, why do feminists and Muslims work together on anything? Does not make a lick of human sense. A little incongruous, isn't it? But they both hate the church. And they are willing to put aside their differences for the time being in order to shut us down. I'm not trying to blast any one particular group. I'm just trying to make the point that the world is willing to make alliances that make no human sense in order to come after us. It's, again, illustrative of the fact that the church is in a class by itself. The gospel is disruptive, and the world will overlook all other rivalries to destroy it. When missionaries go around the world, you'll have rival uh, tribes or rival religions and, and shamans and priests that on normal occasions would be hating and killing each other, but then the missionaries show up and now all of a sudden they're on the same team. The world hates us with a hatred reserved only for the Lord Jesus. This is our lot. This is what Christ promised us. We have come to announce the end of the old ways. You guys, it's dangerous work. Let's move on now to verses 21 through 23. Coming to the end here. When they had preached the gospel to that city, that's Derby, you'll remember, to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul and Barnabas leave for Derby. This is 35 miles further down the Via Sebaste, southeast of Lystra. This is as far as they will go on this trip, the last stop, the end of the line. And they're going to begin the journey back after doing ministry in Derby. And in this city, we see them doing exactly what Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28. They made disciples. Matheusantes. This is the controlling verb of the Great Commission. We talked about that on Wednesday. We actually will meet a man in Acts 20, verse 4, named Gaius, who is a traveling companion of Paul from Derby, one of those disciples. And after an indefinite time period, doesn't say how long, they return to Lystra and then to Iconium, beginning that long counterclockwise circle that will bring them back eventually to Antioch in Syria, where they started. In each of these cities, they appointed elders to lead the church in their absence. This was another part of Paul's ministry. He never left the churches without leaders if he could help it. The books of Timothy and Titus, they're all about appointing elders in the churches. If you'd like to know more about this process other than what we see here, I recommend you go and read them. Speaking of Timothy, by the way, Timothy was from Lystra. The next time Paul returns to Lystra in Acts 16, he's going to pick up Timothy and take him with him for the rest of his ministry. This is the importance of making disciples and setting up the church for the long haul. I hope we can imitate that in all of our future church plants, which we certainly will have. Now look at the message that Paul and Barnabas give to the people. They tell the churches first to continue in the faith. That's the word meno in Greek. It's often translated as abide in the writings of John. You know, John says abide in Christ. Well, Paul and Barnabas are telling them the same thing. Abide, continue in the faith. It means to stay or keep going. Don't give up would be a great way to put it. With the backdrop of what happened to Paul and Lystra, that means so much more. He says, hey, continue in the faith knowing that they could be stoned for it, just like Paul was. He's not only telling them to stand strong against temptation and apathy, but against suffering and persecution. The Bible is very upfront with its readers. We are going to suffer. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 says, We are destined for afflictions. Look how strongly they put it in verse 22. 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The door to heaven is faithful suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.17 says that we are fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The life of the Christian is to be a mirror of the life of Christ, enduring suffering for his sake before the final resurrection. Now, this does not mean that if we are not persecuted, we cannot go to heaven, obviously. But it says that if and when the moment of suffering comes, a Christian cannot give in. Each of us have been given our own destiny by the Lord, and not all of us will suffer physically for Christ. But you must be ready to endure it if you do. When you are insulted or mocked or threatened with the loss of a job or denial of benefits, you cannot give in like Peter did on the night of Jesus' betrayal. You must see every test as a refining fire that will make you more like Christ with every victory. This is the only way to the kingdom of God. It's a narrow road and it's filled with suffering, according to Paul and Barnabas. This is how Christ entered his kingdom, the death on the cross, and it is how we must enter it as well. Refusing to suffer even lightly, for the name of the Lord is evidence of an unconverted soul. If you can only serve Jesus until it costs you pain and discomfort, then your faith is no faith at all. Come on. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We're different from the world. We've come to tell them that everything they've ever believed is wrong. There always has been and always will be opposition to that, sometimes violent opposition. Don't be a spiritual coward. Be like the Christians who are fed to the lions in the Roman Colosseum with hymns on their lips. Be like the Christians who suffered for years without giving up in the Soviet gulags. Be like Paul, who said in Philippians that he desired to share Christ's sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We must suffer to enter the kingdom of God, even if it's only in small ways. Let's finish up now, verses 24 through 28. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, for they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now we've come to the end of the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps all the way around to Perga. The port city of Italia was close by, and they took a ship back to Antioch in Syria. Imagine the jubilation of the church there. There was no FaceTime. <laughs> they didn't know where these guys were, unless they had gotten a letter somewhere on the line. They didn't know if they were alive or dead or if they were having success or not. It had no doubt been many months, possibly even years, since the two had been gone. So much had happened, so many stories to tell. In fact, there was some trouble in Antioch that Paul was going to have to address, but we're going to get to that next week. Do you grasp the significance of this missionary journey? This was the first deliberate effort to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. Almost every one of us is here today because of what was begun in that prayer meeting in Antioch so long ago. The Lord opened up his salvation beyond the nation of Israel, and he sent out his missionaries to bring the good news to the people caught up in the lies of the devil. That's our mission as well. Allow me to close with this story. When Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, he was tempted by the devil. And Matthew 4 tells the story this way. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. The devil offered Jesus exactly what he had come for with no need to go to the cross. This is the temptation of Satan. He will offer us what we want before the battle begins. He is a master negotiator. He offered Paul and Barnabas the applause of the city of Lystra without any effort on their part. All they needed to do was stand by and accept the idolatrous worship of the people. Thank God that both Jesus and the apostles knew better than to fall for that. In both cases, the next tactic of the devil, though, was murder. Christ was nailed to a cross. Paul was stoned. 
When we resist the temptation of Satan to compromise, the next offer will come at the point of a gun. And if we are not prepared in the spirit, we will capitulate. But the Bible teaches us better than that. We cannot compromise with the world. The world is trapped in the gruesome idolatry of sin. And we have the good news of Jesus Christ that can set them free. How can we compromise with them? We bring major cultural disruption, but it is liberty that we proclaim. Liberty from the oppressive demons that enslave God's creation. That is why suffering is the only door to salvation. Because the devil will fight back and he will always try to use suffering to break God's people. Whether with a whisper or with a whip in his hand, the world at the behest of Satan will have our obedience or our deaths. As for me, and I know for you too, I do not need the approval of anyone other than Jesus Christ. My culture, my nation, my family, my soul has been liberated from the wickedness of idols and I am never going back. If that means my death, so be it. But until that day, I'm going to give every breath in my lungs to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. How could we possibly compromise when we have the truth?